I had no doubts about the Bible until I got to Egypt and went to the locations where the events of the Bible were, were said to have happened. And when I got there and I asked, is there evidence for the Bible? Have you found evidence for the Israelites? And the Egyptologist said, so far not. So far not. I mean, I knew he had been there for like 30 years and he hadn't found any evidence. Well, that was a crisis of faith in the making for me. Welcome to Along the Way. I'm John Matarazzo, your host and fellow traveler. Thank you for joining me on my journey as I try to become more like Jesus every day. I love when I have the opportunity to talk with fascinating people and learn how God has met them along their way. I believe that everyone has a story and we can all learn from each other's journey. Through my work as a television producer, I get to interact with some of the most amazing people making an incredible impact for God's kingdom. In this episode of Along the Way, my journey connects me with filmmaker Timothy Mahoney. It was a Saturday morning in September 2015, after a long week of work, and I was amusing myself by scrolling through my Facebook feed. I came across an advertisement for a film that looked intriguing. It posed questions about the historical evidence for the mass migration of the Israelites from Egypt, known as the Exodus. Some scholars were saying that there is no proof, while others were saying that there is proof if you know when to look for it. I love learning about evidence that reinforces my Christian faith, so I dove further into the ad and bought the film, Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. I had never heard some of this new evidence before. Proof of Joseph, the slave who became the savior of Egypt. Clues about the Israelites leaving Egypt after a series of plagues. And evidence for the Battle of Jericho. Excitement rose in my chest as I watched this documentary following the filmmaker's journey that has now spanned for more than 12 years. I knew that I needed to connect with Timothy Mahoney and have him on my TV show, Real Life. He has now been on Real Life twice, and the last time he was with me, he was promoting his second Patterns of Evidence film, The Moses Controversy. When he found out that I also make a podcast, he asked me if I would like to interview him. And I couldn't pass up the opportunity to find out more about what he has learned along the way. Here is that conversation. Tim, it's a pleasure to have you with me on this podcast. Well, and, it's um, good to be on. Uh, could you just uh, introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Yeah. Um, well, I'm Tim Mahoney, and um, I go by sometimes Timothy because uh, uh it sounded like it was more intelligent than just him, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, I grew up in Minnesota, and my parents were, uh, uh, they met at a Bible school. And so uh, I ended up uh, being, I'm the oldest, the first child in the family. And uh, my, my family, I, uh, originally my mother was a music teacher, and my father was a military uh, came out of the military background, and he was uh, going into the ministry. Uh, at least he, he was thinking about it. It didn't last too long, but he was a like a part-time pastor at a small church in hmm. Wisconsin. And so um, in this new film, Patterns of Evidence, The Moses Controversy, I actually tell a little bit about my story 
uh, which I hadn't in the first film that I made, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. But in this particular film, I, I share a little bit about why was it important for me to investigate the stories of the Bible. And it had to do with the fact of how I was raised. And so eventually my... So I was raised in a Christian home, and but sadly my family, my folks divorced. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was about nine... Uh, but when I was probably about nine years old, was when it sort of started to have, to become clear to me that you know something was wrong. Yeah, and um, I ended up um, from there going to um, until I was about eleven. Uh, we, we ended up the, when the family broke up. Uh, we uh, we had to kind of escape. <laughs> you know, okay. it was one of those sort of violent situations, mm. and uh, and that caused uh, caused me to become very serious about uh, about life, and because I saw some things that were you know sure. really really difficult. And as an eleven year old, you kind of had to become the man of the house, I guess. Yeah, I did, and I ended up. Um, uh, I didn't really. I mean, my childhood sort of ended. You know, mm. at that time, probably from the time I was nine-ish to eleven, that's when things became very serious. And then when my folks divorced, then uh, the childhood was a bit over because mm. I was the oldest. I ended up having to to be responsible to help my mom to watch the kids. Uh, my I had a younger brother and two sisters, and I was a bigger, older, more mature as, as a child. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I guess it's the firstborn syndrome, right? Sure. Yeah. But uh, so that caused me to um, uh, to to be more serious about faith too. I mean, I wasn't like just uh, when we went to church. My mother would go to church almost whenever the doors were open. Hmm. I think it was a place to go that was besides just being at home. And she also played the piano, so she she had to play for the services. So whenever there was a church service, we were there, and then you had youth group, and mm-hmm. and then you had uh, you had teen kind of youth group, and then you had like uh, we had a thing called Royal Rangers, which oh was okay, a, I remember that. Yeah, so I was a part of that, and uh, so there's lots of reasons to go to church, and and there was another family called the, the Sandbergs, and they were between our house and the church, and they had five kids. So my mother, she had a big Chrysler, and she, we ended up driving from our house right past the Sandberg's house, stopped, opened the door, five of the Sandberg kids would get in the back of the seat, uh, back of the car, plus our four. This was before seatbelt laws, yeah. I guess? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that car was just filled with people. <laughs> yeah. I think there was a total, there would have been 11 of us in oh that gosh. car. Yeah. We went to church. <laughs> so church has always been something important for you. Yeah. And uh, I was, uh, you know how it is, the ages sort of worked out. And they both, uh, Kirk Sandberg, who is my good friend, he was a couple years older than I was, but he liked playing the guitar. And I was interested in music and guitar. And so we ended up, that was sort of, we created this little band. We never really played anywhere, (laughs) but we had this little music thing going on, which was a great hobby. Yeah. Definitely. I'm into music myself, too, mm-hmm. so I, I get that. Especially at a younger age, it gives you something to do to to, uh, um, to keep your mind focused on something positive, which is Yeah, which it, is good. it's some place to aspire to. Yeah. So um, what happened with your music career? Well, you know, I learned to play an instrument called a pedal steel guitar. And, in fact, I started with a Hawaiian guitar. And, 
and you, some people say, well, how in the world did you start to do that? I somehow knew that at my church there was lots of guitar players, and I was this young kid. And somehow at that age, like about 13, 12 or 13, I realized that that I was going to not be able to play if I played the same thing that everybody else played. You know, you can have only so many people strumming an electric guitar. So I ended Very up true. being attracted to a lap steel guitar, which nobody played. And then that led me to a pedal steel guitar, and I started playing. And I, and being a young, uh, I was able to train my ear. By the time I was 16, I was doing uh, albums for, you know, I was like a backup musician on, on records. I did my first album, and, and then that album actually got quite a bit of airplay in Twin Cities. Really? It was a song called I Got Jesus and He's Got Me. And uh, and it was really a great experience. So then I ended up go- becoming involved with uh, bands. I was in like different bands, mm-hmm. uh, but I was still in high school. But these were like college bands, uh, and usually gospel, country rock, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Interesting. So how did you make the transition from music into film? Where that's you're a filmmaker yeah, right now, right? Well, what happened was was that I didn't think that um, anything about film. In fact. We didn't go to movies. We didn't even have a TV. Really? Yeah, I grew up in a home that, you know, they didn't believe in going to movies. Uh, and um, it was very conservative. And uh, when the TV broke, uh, we didn't replace it either. So I used to like to go babysit because then I, I, when I got the kids to bed, I could watch TV, you know, gun smoke or something. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, but I didn't, I didn't really. Uh, think about movies until I was 18 years old and there was a movie that came out that I heard about by the Billy Graham Association and it was called The Hiding Place and so The Hiding Place was um, a story of a Jewish family or actually it was a a Dutch family that were were hiding Jewish people in their home that's the name The Hiding Place And and the main character was a woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom Mm-hmm. And you're probably familiar with that yeah. story. I read it when I was in uh, high school as yeah. well, and it was very impactful. Yeah, it really was. And so I was 18 years old when I saw the story of, of uh, The Hiding Place, and it was so powerful to be in a cinema and then to actually uh, hear the the sound and, and be in the, you know, the picture with the big screen. And, and, and I just... I ended up going to that movie three times in one week. Oh my you know, gosh! I was like, and I was eighteen, about eighteen. I just turned eighteen when that that film came out, uh, nineteen seventy-five, and that led me to once once I learned what movies were, I go, well, I'd like to go back to another movie, you know. And I started seeing different movies, and um, and I thought that I was going to go into music, and I left home twice to play in music groups, uh, gospel groups, mm-hmm. um, and. After traveling on the road and sort of being, uh, you know, away from home, I was with family music groups. Okay. But I wasn't... You weren't the family. I wasn't the family. It's one thing to be in a family music group and be one of the family members. It's another thing not to be a family member. And uh, it just was not what I... I I just didn't feel the love because it wasn't there. (laughs) Yeah. You know, uh, so we carried a lot of equipment and... and, um, I was hungry a lot when I was a teenager, you know, because, uh, um, and, and so it was, anyway, I decided to not be a traveling musician. And I think it was great that I was able to, to have all that experience in the recording studio 
uh, you know, in concerts and then on the road, which then pointed me to radio. And uh, so a friend of mine uh, who I met was the station manager and a DJ of a, of a popular station. And I, when I got my license, I would drive down to the station and sit with him at the station. And, you know, just sort of being at a radio station with uh, with all the tape, you know, it's back then they had a lot of, you know, yeah. tape. And they had carts with, and just the, the, they actually had records too, you know. I mean, okay. it, it was really something. And just the just the sound of a deep voice, you know, in a microphone. And, yeah, that, and, that's there's something so special about that. Yeah, I loved it. I loved the control room. I, I loved everything about that, and so I thought I'm going to go into radio. Uh, but I ended up going to two years of Bible school first, uh, which and I took an associate of arts degree, just a two year degree, and uh, then I was going to go on to radio. And at that time, I'm going to movies. I hear an ad. For a film school, and I'm—I don't know if they ever, for whatever reason, somebody decided to put an ad for a film school on the radio, and I—I I got the number, wrote it down, and ended up going to that film school uh, for one year, and that's—I loved it. It was, it was the best year of college I had ever had. Was it just a one-year program? No, it was a two-year program, but I met my wife in the middle of it, <laughs> so. That's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, I it's wasn't able to to finish because I I knew I I really wanted to be married, and I I had prayed about that, and and that's when I met my wife Jill. She's a lovely woman. I've had the privilege of meeting her. And, yeah, yeah. So I would agree with that. Yeah, we met probably uh, over forty one years ago, and she came with me to a film lab. The first date I took her on, believe it or not, was because I was working on a student film, and I said, "Would you, you know, would you mind going on some errands, and we'll go get like breakfast or something?" And and um, so I found that interesting, and we ended up making. We, we fell in love. Uh, I proposed to her, uh, and. Uh, we got married within a year. Wow! And we made a film for the wedding. Really? Yeah, it was a 16 millimeter film called The Marriage Covenant. Hmm. And do you just, still have that? Yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah, it's 22 minutes long. Okay. And uh, what I did is I I got a, a tape recorder and I just sat down and we talked about subjects like we we wrote out you know and I just uh, voiced voiced over the subjects and uh, she she and I reflected on well, what does it mean to be married uh as if we would know anything as you know young kids mm-hmm. um i was 21 she was 20 and and what does it mean to have a covenant what does a covenant mean what is the marriage covenant and and then i i uh, rented a horse and a suit of armor and uh you know i did these recreation scenes uh which were you know i, I also had a canadian mounted police uh, you know, outfit, and so she dressed up in costumes, and we 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 did these sort of romantic little scenes as comedy, <laughs> and um, like when I gave her the when I rode up to her as a knight in shining armor, when I leaned over to give her the uh, roses, I fell off the horse. And uh, was that planned or yeah, that just I, that? okay? It was planned. Okay. Uh, and I managed to not hurt myself. But that's too bad. That's <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's a lot further down than you think when you're on a horse. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that's a that's interesting. So I'm very curious when you look back at what you thought of 
marriage as a 21 year old when you look back at it now you've been married for almost 41 over yeah we're 40 years now you're 40 years now uh when you look back at what you thought as a 21 year old Mm -hmm. what do you think what did what did you have right what did you were you like man we were we were stupid (laughs) you know uh because i grew up in a divorced home i so did not want to be in another divorced relationship so i really thought about it pretty seriously and I had prayed, and um, I really believe that we were supposed to, we were the right couple. And because of that um, experience growing up, I think we were pretty much on target, but I might have known it from my head, but I had no clue what it meant in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that for a lot of us, we have, um, I think there's like a, a drawing to something, like a, there's like a, a gravitational pull in directions. And th- that gravitational pull, like for me, was in uh, music. And then I thought radio. Mm-hmm. And then uh, film became it. And I think ultimately it was that I always felt the desire to tell stories. But um, I think the other thing was to have family and to be a part of a family. And I didn't want to be married to the wrong person and I wanted to to find a person because I felt that having the right person would help me become um, the person that I felt I was supposed to be, become yeah absolutely. but it, I just didn't know who that person was <laughs> you know I mean I liked history I liked uh, uh, storytelling and when I look back on it now I can see the reasons why I'm making films that investigate the historical credibility of the Bible um, but I wouldn't have thought that that would be what would have happened uh, but yeah. I can see why it happened Yeah, you just mentioned about the making films about the credibility of the Bible and that's what originally drew me to you and how we've gotten to know each other a little bit you've been a guest mm-hmm. on my program Real Life mm-hmm. your work on patterns of evidence the exodus which i saw a couple years ago um really really impacted me you're speaking about or really you're not just the one speaking about it you're investigating Mm -hmm. and you are you have questions and you're going to different people that have different answers and you're trying to weigh those things and your work in the in the exodus is phenomenal and now you have the moses controversy how did you get started in in this uh Film investigation. Yeah, I had made some other films prior to this. I had been doing a series with different Bible uh, teachers or scholars. Um, and it, as it turned out, by the time I got done, I had done about 30 of these types of curriculums, which were popular for Sunday schools. Yeah. And they were like five or six episodes each. And, um, and what, but I was always frustrated when I made them because I felt they were just sort of talking heads. Mm-hmm. They're just people sitting and talking. And I tried to make as pretty a talking head show as I could. <laughs> but it's still, you know, like I'd find the right location and then we would film it. And and um, and it was it was okay. It, I mean, it served its purpose. It was like a, it's as good as it could get. Sure. <laughs> but it wasn't being there. And it wasn't, it wasn't a documentary. And I always wanted to make dramatic films. Uh, but but somehow I always was also interested in nonfiction, uh, you know, documentaries. Yeah. And so somehow, over the course of time, we ended up making um, 
another film earlier on, which I was not the. I was I helped to get it started, which is called uh, Secrets of the Bible Code, and that film uh, came out by another company called Grizzly Adams Productions, and they they produced the Ancient Secrets of the Bible, mm-hmm. and so there was a book out that came out about this in the late nineties okay. uh, about the Bible Code. And uh, so I had heard about that, and I was a part of that development of that, uh, just where they were looking for sequences of information in the in the text. And uh, there's some pretty interesting, you know, materials there. And then from there, I made another TV special called uh, Jesus Divine or Da Vinci, which when the Da Vinci Code came out, okay, I remember uh, that. Yeah, yeah, I was I was really bothered by the Da Vinci Code. Uh, in the sense that... They were making some outlandish claims. Right. And people were believing it, which is even more crazy. Yeah. And, and I thought, somebody has to do something about this. Somebody needs to make a film about this and kind of let people know. Because in the inside cover of that book, it kind of it basically states that everything we're saying here is, is accurate. Well, that mm-hmm. wasn't accurate. you know. And, Definitely not. And um, so... I uh, talked with a scholar, and I had an idea, and uh, I ended up uh, thinking, well, how am I going to f- handle this? And I want to make it more mainstream. And I, I th- a thought came to me to go to a coffee shop, and at that coffee shop, sit down and uh, talk with people and ask them if they've seen the Da Vinci Code, and then to explain the story to me. So I did the, just like we're sitting here with a you know, <laughs> microphone, a camera, and I would ask them these different questions, so tell me the story. How does it begin? You know, who's this person, that person? And then, and then eventually I would get to the final question, and then I would say, so who is Jesus? Is, he, is Jesus divine or da Vinci? And they would go, oh, Jesus is divine. And somebody would say, oh, Jesus is definitely da Vinci, you know, meaning this is the interpretation. Sure. And, um, uh, and I was quite, uh, I mean, I'm glad I made that film. And was able to basically, you know, answer that question. But I I made that film without any money to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) I made it because it had to be made. Sure. And I told a distributor that I have an idea for a film. And he says, well, I need a a title. And so the title that I had was, I I, thought about it, prayed about it. And finally one morning I woke up, Jesus, Diviner Da Vinci. And so I gave him that title and he said... "Um, I like that title. He's that's really good, and so we ended up um, calling me back about an hour later and said, "I just sold a thousand units." Oh my gosh! And then he called back at like another hour later. He goes, "By the time the end of the day came, I had three thousand copies sold for a title that I hadn't even made." <laughs> wow! So then I go, "Well, now I need to make it." Yeah. So that's how that happened. That's interesting. So that kind of started you really into this type of film work. Yeah, it was sort of the beginning. In the meantime, I'd actually started on this project. I didn't know how to make films like this. They really were a lot of experimentation and just trying to figure out, how do I tell a story as complex as this? And uh, and it kept getting bigger. Yeah. I think that was the problem, was that, was that I had to be... I had to be in the material for a long time in order to understand how to tell it. And eventually, I, what I would say to some people is, you you have to have a story in order to tell a story. Absolutely. 
and I hadn't had a story yet in the beginning. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't mature enough, and I didn't know enough about it. I would have just been making something, you know, pretty trivial or whatever. So, but I did make two films prior to the one that I finally made, and the, and the, we never released them because I never felt that they were right. I look mm-hmm. back at them, and I'm so embarrassed by by them because they look they look so poorly. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think we're always embarrassed by the first by the earlier stuff that we've done. Yeah, um, and uh, you know I. I've been producing television shows now for a while, and I look back at some of the earlier ones and I'm like, oh man, I can't believe I did things that way. Or, mm-hmm. um, so, but uh, I want to talk more about your film in in just a minute too. The the patterns of evidence series, especially some of the things I want to talk about in this interview, and I want to make sure that I get these in here. Um, you know, I'm calling this podcast along the way mm-hmm. because in my life, there's been. S- Primarily, God teaches me things along the way. It's it's not necessarily things that I intended to learn, mm-hmm. but it's things that God has taught me as I was going to where I thought God was taking me. Mm-hmm. The scripture that I, the story that I like to talk about with this is the, on the road to Emmaus. The disciples, these two disciples, were walking. Mm-hmm. They knew that they were they had to get to Emmaus, and this was after Jesus was crucified and uh, was risen again, and they didn't know about that yet, and so. They're walking along, and Jesus comes and comes along with them, and he's walking with them, and they don't realize that it's him mm-hmm. this whole time, and he's revealing the scriptures to them. When they finally get to their destination, uh, Jesus breaks the bread for uh, for their meal, and then he disappears, and they realize that it was Jesus this whole time. They say to each other, "Didn't our hearts burn within us along mm-hmm. the way as he was revealing the scriptures to us?" And mm-hmm. so, I kind of want to ask some questions based around that. Um, and so, like, do you remember like, the, the first thing that God spoke to you, that you remember that God spoke to you about? At what age? Well, the, 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 just the earliest thing that you can remember that God spoke to you. And what did he say, and how did it change you? Well, um, there was something that happened in my life when I was a kid that I knew that I had to film. And the first time I had a sense that... that it was God speaking to me. It was actually when I was almost hit by a, a vehicle, mm. and I was. My mother asked me to go to the grocery store, and I so I ran to the grocery store. And you know, when you're a kid, you run everywhere. Oh yeah, you don't walk, you no. run. So I ran to the grocery store with you know probably a, a dollar wadded up in my pocket or two dollars to get something like butter or something my mother needed. We lived on the same block as a grocery store, but there's an alley in between, and there's this big apartment building with stores on the bottom of it. So when I came back running, I was running full blast, and I was about approaching the alley. I was just going to run into the alley. didn't think about anything like looking for cars or anything. And I heard this loud voice yell, Stop. And I t- stopped, and I turned around, and there's nobody anywhere. And so I start to run again, and then I hear this voice say, walk. So I walk, and when I get to the edge of the building, when I'm going to you know, step into the alley, it says, look. And I poke my head around, the and all of a sudden, about five feet from me, coming at full speed, is a huge tire. And it was a garbage truck coming and it and I, I pulled my head back and it just came right in front of me. I mean, it was probably as close as you and I are. That's how close that garbage truck so was. So like to three the wall. feet maybe. Yeah, yeah. Three feet and had I not stopped, walked and looked, I would have been crushed and we wouldn't be sitting here. Um, 
And I went home and I talked with my mother and I told her, and she just held me in her arms and she thanked the Lord uh, and and prayed. And I think that was the first time I ever, you know, actually, I would say audibly heard a voice. That sounds like it to me. Mm-hmm. And so I, so obviously God has a purpose for your life. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's set you apart from a young age. Yeah. Um, so how did, how did you identify that purpose? I know it's kind of, you're, you're kind of weaving that in through the story right now, but how, how did you feel like you identified your purpose? Well, I think that uh, a purpose, um, we could call it a calling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's verse 10, it says, For we are Christ's workmanship. And it communicates that, uh, that, what he, that Christ has prepared good works for us to do before the beginning of you know, creation. And so identifying that, I, I didn't really know about that verse until just a few years ago. My wife shared it with me. I think that that um, the one concern that happens with people is they get distracted from their purpose. And, and it's really important. Uh, and for me, I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew after I was in, well, I started going to movies... That, that, that I was supposed to be involved with movies, which was the farthest thing from my background or from my family or anyone, mm-hmm. and um, and the cinema, uh, and and I don't know if it's TV or what it was, but I had this drawing, and it was like my heart. I think I think when you have a purpose, it's like your heart is uh, is drawn to it, and there was a love for it, there was a passion for it. And so, so that, I think, is one of the first things that a person can learn on the way. And what does that verse say? It was like their hearts were burned within them. Yeah, they were burning within us along mm-hmm. the way. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what happens with a, with, a, with a calling, is that God causes a burning in your heart to go, yes. It's like, let's just say if you're out on a beach, if you shut your eyes, you would know where the sun was coming from, right? Because you could feel it. You, you know it's on this side of you know where, mm-hmm. where, where it's shaded it's gonna you can you can feel that warmth you can feel that burning and I think that as you get closer to understanding the things that you may be interested in let's say for some people um, it could be horses and you go you know why is it that I love horses so much and then over time you start to realize that well horses and let's say people with uh, 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 physical handicaps really work well together and and uh, horses seem to have another understanding and so i've seen people with this love or passion for horses that all of a sudden have a horse camp you mm. know and they go well you know why is it that you love horses and then you love children and then you love god and then all of a sudden it all fits together and and now for me i would not like uh messing around with horses <laughs> <laughs> yeah you fell off of one earlier so. yeah right and so yeah exactly and um so what ends up happening is that I think God puts that longing in, in your heart for something. And the most, I'll just tell you this, the most concerning thing is that you'll drown that longing out. Mm. And um, I think that... Well, what do you mean by that? Just <clears throat> Well, that if there's a purpose for your life, there's going to be uh, lots of opportunity to distract you from that. And, uh, and for example, you know, what does it say? The verse, the Bible says, be still and know that I am Lord. Mm. But today, 
not many people are, have silence in their life. No. In fact, it's pretty much constant music or news or TV, you know, constantly. Yeah. And so you're not really able to think because you're you're busy amusing yourself. Mm-hmm. And you know the two words, uh, muse? Do you know muse means to think? Ah uh, means not to think. So amusement is not to think. Whoa. I've never never thought about that before. I never realized that before. Mm-hmm. And if, wow. you, if you're not thinking, you're kind of just entertaining yourself. You're never thinking about maybe the things you're supposed to be doing. Wow. And, and so what can happen is, is that you can get caught up. And I'm not trying to say that it's not right to pay... You know, you've got to pay the bills, you've got to feed your family, mm-hmm. you've got to do all that. But there are some things you're supposed to do, I believe, that, and you have to think about that and pray about that and not get distracted by entertainment. Yeah, that's really important. I know it's so easy. I mean, our phones are attached to our hips all the time, and they're in, they're in our hands. And it's like one of the first things you grab in the morning mm-hmm. and when you wake up, and it's probably the last thing you you do at night sometimes. And um, it's a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. I know that. And so putting the, some of those things aside to focus on, on the Lord is, is something that I try to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I was better at it. But mm-hmm. uh, what you said about the whole amuse thing is to not to think. That's, mm-hmm. We're amusing ourselves with all this technology. Even mm-hmm. though it's good things, mm-hmm. we're pulling ourselves away from maybe that destiny that God has for us. Yeah, and you might not be thinking, you might be thinking about something that you're not supposed to be thinking about. Mm. Like, you know, but you're supposed to be thinking about other things. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. So, uh, with your destiny, with your purpose, you're making these incredible films. What's the first practical step that you took and that uh, you would encourage somebody else to take? I, th- um, well, when I first started, uh, when my wife and I got married, I was able to save up some save up some money, and I bought, believe it or not, a tape recorder. Now this tape recorder, well, I, let me pull back. Actually, I bought a mixing board. Okay. So I bought a mixing board, uh, and it was the only piece that I had. Uh, I didn't have anything else, but and it took me eighteen months to pay for that mixing board, and I used to I had a I, I had it in a, in a room, and I had a cover over it. And I ended up, um, I laid hands and we prayed over it and we dedicated it to the Lord. And then after I got it paid off, then I was able to buy a tape recorder. And what I was doing was, it was a, like a multi-year plan to, to, be, to be, develop a recording studio in my hmm. home. And I was, and at the time, this is before I, I you know, I wasn't sure music, film, sure. what it was going to be. So the easiest thing was to, recruit, to develop a recording studio. And um, so that took about four or five years. And so what I would say a practical step for people is to have a long-range plan. In other words, don't um, think in just terms of, of you know, short, time, short, short term. But always, I've always had a long-range plan. And sometimes you know what that means, but, but let's just say... If you want to be a writer, or you want to be a, a singer, or you want to do something, you need to start working towards that plan. You know, mm-hmm. and w- that means that when it's sunny and everyone's out at the park playing, 
if you're if you're scheduled to be working on that plan, some you just have to be consistent. And, and you pick, we've I've learned that if you pick away at it, piece by piece by piece, you, all of a sudden you've got something. And so I went from a mixing board to a uh, recorder to then building the room to then getting a microphone. Okay, now I'm starting to look like a little recording studio to actually building a whole recording studio and and you know I mean it, I had the I had the space I had all the stuff and within you know four or five years I was in the, you know I was doing it. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's very practical. I appreciate that praying praying over that soundboard that mixing mm-hmm. board. Even though you had nothing to really plug into it, mm-hmm. you were praying by faith that this was the first piece the first step in that in that vision that God has for you. And my wife had to tolerate the fact that we were spending money on stuff that she's like, well, I'm not quite sure, but, you know, so Tim is spending money on this equipment, and, you know, what's the point? Mm. You know, but... Oh, wow, yeah, that's, that's so true. You know, slowly building towards it. But, uh, once again, why it's as important is because you're building on a larger idea. Wow, that's really... I appreciate that. That's good. Um, what what would you say would be was one of your most difficult steps that you had to take? Um, I think that the risk, the financial risk, is always there uh, because leaving, like when I first uh, got a job at an ad agency, I had to, I had to leave a job. Um, uh, there's a couple things happened when I first got out of school and got married. You know, I mean, here I had two years of a social arts degree and a film and a one-year film school. I was didn't know anything. I mean, I was as green as they come, uh, and but I was enthusiastic, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, but then I had to go to work, and mm-hmm. I worked at a at a body shop. My uncle had a body shop, auto body, and uh, I learned how to paint and sand sand and paint cars. And do you know that from the time I was 18 until I was 30 years old, I painted cars. Hmm. I painted probably several thousand cars, you know, parts and, you know, front ends and sides and doors and everything. And through that time, that was a very difficult time because I um, had accidents when I was in the body shop with my eyes. And a couple times, well, three times I went to the emergency room. I think I was the only guy in the body shop that had these bizarre accidents. And um, I finally came to a place where I was really desperate. And I said to God, I said, um, I, I said, if I never make a film for you, I will pray for those that do. Mm. So I, there's a story about Abraham and his son Isaac. And Abraham has to give Isaac up and I wanted to be a filmmaker so bad and I ended up um, putting my desire for filmmaking just said okay I, I, I'm, you know whatever you want I'll give it back to you and um, the Lord uh, said someday you know I said you'll, you'll be able to move forward and I said please before I'm 30 I want to get out of this body shop <laughs> you know I, I just feel like I want to get on with my life um but those during those thirty years, during those you know, till I was thirty, I was working and I built you know I had a rec- little record label and mm-hmm. uh, I was doing radio commercials, TV commercials. I was doing everything I wanted to be doing, but I was painting cars at the same time. So 
I didn't say, well, what it could have, should have, someday I'll do something else. I actually started a parallel career alongside my car painting career. Hmm. And so by the time I moved to an ad agency, I'd already produced a number of things and, and just walked into that and ended up selling more advertising and marketing than the guy had ever had sold before because God, I think God was put his hand on my life. Wow. So you've had some challenges along the way. How did, how did you overcome some of those detours in, in your path? I think number one is perseverance. Um, so uh, if you feel like you're supposed to do something, you need to make a plan for it. So you have to make a plan and then just get up in the morning and, and, and say, well, what do I need to do today to make that happen? Um, and number two, um, I think it's important to have people to pray with because uh, you're going to need help. You're going to need mm-hmm. extra people that maybe can be sympathetic to what you're trying to accomplish if you're trying to develop something or, you know, we create things that don't exist. And lots of people do, you know, but the difference is, is when you're making a film, the types of films that I'm trying to make, uh, there's also a spiritual component to them. Yeah, to them. absolutely. And I'm trying to make films that don't exist, that are breathed, inspired by God, you know, that there's something more than just me, you know, determining the course of that film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to be led by the Holy Spirit as you're, mm-hmm. as you're doing these. Um, this is kind of a, a fun question. If you could talk to yourself in the past, what version of yourself would you talk to and what would you tell yourself? Like, what, what age, or what stage of life, mm-hmm. what would you like to go back and say, okay, little Tim, what, yeah. what, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, put more money in the IRA account. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I think that, um, um, yeah, I do think that I did a lot of things that I was supposed to do, and I probably would encourage myself uh, that it's, you know, because there's a lot of anxiety that you can have about, you know, uh, I think I would have taken more time for my uh, vacation time. Mm-hmm. I've been a hard taskmaster on myself and haven't taken very many vacations, and my family would, would agree to that. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, they, they told me that they didn't feel like they missed out, but I always took them on a business vacation, <laughs> you know, so okay. so it was kind of like the business would pay for a trip to a conference, mm-hmm. and that conference was a Christian film conference or something, and then they'd go to the water park, and I would go to the conference, and that's kind of how we, we did things. There was a whole season of my life like that. So I think, I think for people is that um, I would probably tell myself that... Um, there were times when I worked too hard that I should have relaxed. So I was mm-hmm. always focused on accomplishing and not trying to forget what I th- my goal was. That there there are other times when I need to tell myself, relax, take a vacation, enjoy the weekend, take your family, and just, you know, don't work so hard. How would you decide when is that appropriate and when is it not? Like, when is it laziness and when is it actually fruitful? 
think that, you see, the challenge for a lot of people is that we have to do one thing, but we want to do something else. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is you have a job, you have to pay the bills. But let's say you're, you want to be a writer. Well, when do you find time to write? If, you're, if you have a family and you want to be a writer and you feel like you're supposed to write or be a creative person, you're going to have to find some time in your life where you're going to basically write something. And you're going to say, well, when I come home from work and then I have my dinner with my family and then I'm, you know, get everybody to bed and then it's at like 9 o'clock at night, are you good to write at that time? You know, so you write from 9 until 10 or 10.30. And that's just your writing time. Well, what if you, you say, I can't do that every week. Well, can you do it, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays? And so you say, okay, there's three hours. Well, at least you're moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I used to tell a friend, you know, if you're going to fall or trip, fall forward. Yeah, Don't fall backward. But I think what I've noticed is that there's a lot of people that say they want to do something, but they've never actually make a step towards it. And I st- when I started to travel, I started to see people that had TV shows. And I was being interviewed by them. And I, I looked at everything, all the equipment they had, and I realized, my word, these people don't n- hardly know what they're doing. But they have a TV show. And I go, they don't even know how to light. Look at their camera gear. And everything was like... It was like so amateur, but they were the ones that had a TV show, not me. They were the ones that were putting out, they were on a network mm-hmm. because they had the gumption, even though they didn't know, they didn't know what they didn't know. And I started to, t- to teach me something that, that if someone wants to write, it's not the proclamation of being a writer or a filmmaker or a musician. It's the actual doing of it. Mm. Because a lot of people are saying that, but they never do. Sayers have to do. I mean, you know, it, and then you find people that don't say it, but they do it. They just they just have to do it. And I see this like Filipino guy who's in Chicago or somewhere, and he's he's doing. He's got this little show, and it's you know it goes out to the world. Yeah, <laughs> he's got an audience, and I'm like, now that taught me something. You seem to be picking up a lot of things along the way where God, where God's leading you. you know, that, that eventually led you to your Patterns of Evidence series. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit. How did that really get started? Because you had some really serious questions. Mm-hmm. And I know I resonate with that because I went through a, a period in my life where I really wanted to know, is, is what the Bible says trustworthy? And is the Bible itself trustworthy? Not just what it's saying, but can we trust that the Bible is really the Word of God? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. how did that? Well, I had no, you? I had no doubts about the Bible growing up. I had no doubts about the Bible until I got to Egypt and went to the locations where the Bible, uh, the events of the Bible were, were said to have happened. And when I got there, it wasn't easy to get there. And when I finally got there, and I asked, "Is there evidence for the Bible? Have you found evidence for the Israelites?" And the Egyptologist said, "So far, not. So far, not." I mean, I knew he had been there for like 30 years, and he hadn't found any evidence. Well, that was a crisis of faith in the making for me. So when I came back, um, I was sitting in my editing suite on a Saturday morning looking at this footage. And that's when, as I looked at it, this thought came into my mind. Everything that you've been taught is a lie, Mm. you know. 
what your mother believes, all this. This isn't true. And this deep fear and kind of uh, lostness came over me. But then another thought came into my mind. Stop editing. Get up. Go to your office. So I got up, went to my office. Go to your bookcase. And I went to my bookcase. And somebody had given me a book by Egyptologist David Roll. I opened that book up. I had been given it to me about a year earlier. And I looked at it and I was like, well, this is interesting. Here, here what we had was all the evidence for the Israelites, but at a, but but completely a different interpretation than the first Egyptologist. Okay. And I said, I have to go to England and talk to this man. And that's what I did. <laughs> so you didn't just say, I'm going to read more of this book. You're like, I got to talk to this guy yeah. in person. Right. I got questions and I need to get answers directly right. from the source. Well, I'm a filmmaker too, so I wanted yeah. to interview him. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you you went to England and you met David Roll. Yeah. yeah. What what happened then? Well, then I filmed that interview, and what ended up happening was, if I look back on it and give you the Reader's Digest shorter version of it, uh, that's when I started to see a pattern of evidence, but we didn't call it that. I just knew that there was evidence for Joseph. And I was asking lots of questions uh, to, of different people like David Roll and, uh, and others. But what happened then was that over the course of, of this journey of, that I was on um, I I thought I was making a film and I was trying to make a film but what happened was is that I was actually being uh, sounds like an odd word but groomed in the world of archaeology and the Bible and and I was actually going through experience myself where I was I was uh, trying to understand a way to to sort it all out and so had I not spent the time in all the trips, multiple trips back and forth, and just getting a better, clearer, deeper understanding, had I not done that and had I not listened to different viewpoints, I never could have made the films that I made. Hmm. But I had, a, had been seasoned a long time in that information to basically step back and say, well, how in the world are we going to tell this story? And what is holding it together? It's like uh, lots of things need a spine to them, you know, and then you hang the muscle on the, on the skeletal structure. Once, once you're able to figure out that what we were really looking for were patterns of evidence, that freed us up to take a scientific approach that was more popular. Um, and it also meant that I could talk with people from different viewpoints. Mm. And once I started talking to people from different viewpoints, I started to, to like the, the, the style of filmmaking better, too. So the first one about the Exodus is really about, did the Exodus really happen? Can you just give us the Reader's Digest version of, of that before we... And then I want to talk about the Moses controversy yeah. for a moment. So that for the first film uh, asked, basically looks for six patterns of evidence. Uh, it looks for the arrival of the Israelites in Egypt, the arrival of Joseph. Can we find a character like that? Then we look for, is there uh, a growth in this people? Because the Bible says that this small family comes in and they grow into this nation in, in Egypt. And then it says that, the, that they're so large that the Egyptians get threatened by them and they be, turn them into slaves. So can we find a, a pattern of slavery? Of, the, of a Semitic people that go from, let's say, come in small, grow, and then are impoverished. And those are the first three steps. Arrival, multiplication, and slavery. Then we basically said, well, the Bible says that there was plagues, and that mm -hmm. ten plagues hit Egypt, and 
So there has to be some type of devastation in Egypt, followed by an exodus of these Semitic people. And the final step was the conquest of the Promised Land. So that first film looked at those six steps, and that was the beginning of the Patterns of Evidence uh, film series. And you found some incredible things. And uh, anybody that's listening, I want to make sure that you mm-hmm. check out PatternsofEvidence.com, mm-hmm. uh, and you can get information there. I'll put the information in the show in the show notes as well. Right, and once again, I'm the filmmaker. All the what I did is I basically found the people who found what they were looking for. But I found a, I, I was able to create with a, I have a team. Uh, Steve Law is my writing partner, and uh, he's amazing help. Uh, and uh, you know, have a, a team of editors and and different people and and investors so they supported me through this whole process it took 12 years to make that first film wow and when when it came out it went to theaters and then it went uh into worldwide distribution on netflix yeah how was it received what was some of the feedback from that well uh on amazon it's a five-star rated film with over you know close to 600 uh you know reviews wow so it's it was really highly received you know people are it's a viewpoint that it's saying that uh, it's expressing a way of seeing the events of the Bible and when they happened. Yeah, and 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 what we're saying is that you have to look earlier in time to find those evidences, mm-hmm. and that's what the first film shows is that there's a challenge. It, it's challenging the chronology of Egypt. People think they know what they know, but it's not always correct. Right. They so, just they're just entrenched in their own belief. Yeah. So the question is: Is what your professor taught you, uh, and his professor taught him, what were those assumptions, and uh, is it possible that they're are they really correct? And so that's what the film is trying to look at: is to free us from maybe some faulty assumptions. You made mention before we started this that you've actually had some contact with people that their lives have been changed because of seeing this film. Right. Can you tell me just a little bit about about some of those. Yeah, well, that's true, and we have lots of different testimonies. I'll give you one in particular. There's a woman who came up to me. I was at a conference, and she came up to our booth, and she turned around, and she says, she's from Africa, and she says, can I tell you my story? And I said, yes, and so she said, well, she says, I'm from Africa, and I was from a different religion, and I converted to Christianity, and so I wanted to become, I wanted to go to a good college so she thought she picked a good christian college and went there and, and and she took bible and the professor said that the stories of the exodus didn't happen that it was a myth and she thought at a christian bible college right they say that the exodus didn't happen right let's say yes at a christian school yes i'm just establishing yeah. that that's yeah. what that has happened okay right and and um and so she she was quite alarmed by this it really bothered her she thought why did i become a christian if the stories aren't true and so she went back and there was a student there from a group called ratio christi and they said well have you heard about patterns of evidence and she said that she hadn't and um they said well you need to see patterns of evidence and so she got it on Netflix, and she said she stayed up the whole night, watched the film, took all sorts of notes. And the next day, she went back to school, back to class, and told the professor, she said, you are wrong. You are wrong. There is evidence for the Exodus. You need to see patterns of evidence. And he goes, what's patterns of evidence? And she says, and so she told him, and he ended up watching it. And she said, just so you know, she says that um, he changed his class. No way. The professor basically changed his test and he changed his class 
and uh, he was he was you know moved by it. And this this girl who who this woman who potentially could have you know walked away from her faith. And I've gotten many. I just got an email from somebody from France that said the same thing. Wow. Uh, so we have about eighty or so eighty pages of of you know of people writing us with all sorts of different stories. Um, I have an email. I just got a text today from a young man who saw the second film. And then he had to see the first film. He was an agnostic, hmm. 25 years old, and he basically just came back to belief. You know, he's just he's just this, uh, really really moved by what he saw, the information that he saw. That's awesome, Tim. Um, why do you think that there is such an attack on the evidence that really is there? Well, I think that's you know I think there's lots of reasons. Um, some of them are that people just don't believe the stories happen because they believe that history of the Bible happened a certain way. But um, the way that they're suggesting that it happened then means that the whole Bible is suspect. Because mm. if there wasn't a Moses, if there wasn't um, the event of the Exodus, then all of the other Bible writers who, God says, were inspired to write the scriptures uh, weren't inspired because they're all wrong. So the reason why it's so significant that we figure this out is that uh, all of those Bible writers, and even Jesus, is talking about Moses. And uh, Jesus is referencing Moses multiple times. In the Transfiguration, you know, there's three that are there, and Moses is one of them with Jesus. Mm -hmm. So all of this is then not, you know, doesn't add up, you know, Mm. uh, because... It's all built then upon a fabrication, so that's the reason why. And I let me tell you something. I didn't know that I'd be making a film about about any of that, and so this new film, Patterns of Evidence: The Moses Controversy, is really addressing that first question: How do we know that that this these texts uh, were written by Moses? And so the only thing that we could really look at is asking the question: Was there a writing system? Because that's another complaint. They say there wasn't a writing system that Moses could have used right. at the time of the Exodus. And so we said, well, what would the writing system have to be? I mean, it would have been, you know, it has to be, it has to be available at the time of the Exodus in the region of Egypt. And it has to be in a form like Hebrew, because all texts are, were written in Hebrew. Um, and it has to be, well, later on we discovered it has to be alphabetic. And so, like that's uh, the as question. opposed to hieroglyphic, right? As opposed to some type of a, yes, yeah, like there were like hieroglyphs and cuneiform, which was wedge shaped writing. Mm. So you have to look at those two writing systems, and uh, the film basically shows you that that hieroglyphics and those other and cuneiform were so complex that it would take a long time for someone to learn them. Mm. But the Bible is communicating that the Israelites could read and write. Uh, because Moses gave a command and said, teach these commands to your children. Write them on the yeah. doorposts of your tents and of your gates. So uh, there's a direct connection multiple times to the writing. And um, I think even when the spies go out, they're to, to write down descriptions of what mm-hmm. they see. Uh, the second time, I think it was. and So there's there's many, many references to, to this idea of these Israelites being literate. Um, wow, that's something that you know you go through Sunday school growing up. Mm-hmm. You don't even think about that. 
because we're so used to the 26 letters of the English, of the English alphabet. Yep. And, you know, this is just what everybody used. And But that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And you're pointing back to something that is possibly very, I mean, very likely the very first alphabet. Yeah. It's definitely the very first alphabet. And the big question is, is, is it Hebrew? Mm, Can you connect okay. it with Hebrew? And what we see is that the people group that matches the very first alphabet matches the story in the Bible of the Israelites. Wow. Wow. I got two more questions for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we've gone longer than I expected, but there's just so much to talk about. Um, what is something, uh, a bit of evidence, that a pattern of evidence that you found that just floored you? Whether you've made a film about it or not, what is something that just then that just kind of showed you, wow, God really has an intelligent design for all this? I think that once I came this year, once I came to the realization that that there was a writing system that existed, that this writing system, the deeper intent of the writing system, is the fact that well, what if God allowed us to have this ability to write the Bible? And, and gave a writing system so that it's not just writing it, but it's so we could read it. Mm. You know, that there was a reason that God wanted his word to be retained. And the, and I can tell you that if we don't write things down, I can't retain them. I mean, I can't remember a lot of things that just happened a week ago. You know, you're taking notes right here, you know, so when you look at all these different reasons, you, you take notes because you're trying to ret- retain the information. Well, if God is communicating to Moses about the the history of, the, of creation and, and communicating so many different things, and it's being passed down, um, uh, and we got the laws and the commands and all of this information. It's a lot of information. Mm-hmm. It has to be retained in a way that people can take it in. And I think the the brilliant, the aha moment for me is that is that I can read the words of Moses directly, and that I think that the alphabet, the prime purpose of the alphabet, is to understand the words of God. And in Romans. It says that, you know, what value is it that, that you know, you're a Jew? In chapter 3, it says, well, these are the person, people who are given the very words of God. Hmm. So if you had a race of people that were given the very words of God, all the authors in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I believe they all were Jewish. So he picked this group of people, this family, to, to communicate who he was to the world, who God is to the world, what the plan is, what's the big picture. Wow. Wow. And if you think about it, then this alphabet, uh, which if people see the film, they're going to see that this alphabet then is the basis of all alphabets throughout the world. And that from from that time, that little starting point, it then spreads, the alphabet then spreads around the world. Mm-hmm. And and then all the writing systems adapt to it, except for Chinese and uh, maybe a couple others. But 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 it was so efficient because now you only had to have like less like in that twenty. Uh, I think the first alphabet didn't. I don't know how many figures it had twenty or twenty two. They didn't have vowel vowels at sure. that time. But so what happens is it has all these it has these letters that you can arrange any kind of word that you want because it's a phonetic alphabet. Mm-hmm. And that basis of that alphabet then is, I think, the railroad tracks for the Bible. Because ultimately, that alphabet was used to 
to to to give information. So it's like God is giving you a gift, and that gift is I'm gonna get, I'm gonna allow you to have this, but the of uh, the ability to write and record history, uh, write stories, write love songs, but the primary purpose of it is that you'll understand God's story. That's that's what I see. Now, scholars would just pull their hair out if they heard me say that. But I'm going to tell you that <laughs> that the one book that utilized the Bible more than any other and the impressions that we get from the Bible is that this is God's Word. And it's so important that what gets so close to God that it says, in the beginning was the Word in, chapter, in John chapter 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in order to have a word, you have to have an alphabet. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can yeah. have something else, but what, we're, what I'm trying to say is an alphabet is key. Because because what does it do? It makes it easy for the writer, but it also makes it easy for the reader to comprehend what was written. So God gave man not just his word, but the alphabet, the ability to understand it, because he is a communicating God. Yep. He wants to be involved in our lives every single day, every single way. And some people would say, well, you can't prove that, Tim. And I say, yes, I know I can't prove it. I'm just saying that that's what I think is going on. My theory is that that I believe that the alphabet is more than a coincidence, that the alphabet is connected to the transference of the knowledge of God, and that it was the basis of allowing it to happen. And history shows that it actually, the one book that utilized the alphabet more than any other by, I don't know how many times more, but it's like vast, like a thousand times more than any other book in the world mm-hmm. is the Bible. The Bible utilized it in all these languages. That's fascinating, Tim. Can you please just tell us how to find out more information? If someone is interested in, in this, uh, seeing this film, they can go to patternsofevidence.com and uh, we'll have it available for them uh, you know, in different forms like digital or DVD. One last question. Uh, I've, I've gained a lot of, of knowledge uh, You've blessed me a lot from our conversation here. What book would you recommend that, after our conversation in in this, would impact my life? Probably the Bible. The Bible. <laughs> Outside of the Bible. I, I'm reading the Bible every yeah, day. So. Okay. Well, uh, you know, we do have some books on our website. Uh, we have... Uh, if you're if someone's interested in the first film, Patterns of Evidence, uh, the Exodus, we have the uh, Patterns of Evidence, a filmmaker's journey, which is a book that uh, Steve Law and I wrote. Uh, that's sort of giving a, a view of the behind the scenes of making that film. So a script for a film is usually like 50 pages or or so, and I think this book is in the 400 pages. So it tells you a lot of the things that happen behind the making of the film, and deeper. We have bonus chapters where we go into deeper uh, into parts of the investigation. So these are things that you don't even cover in the film. Right, yeah, quite a bit. And then we have um, we have a children's series called Young Explorers, which is also taking the material from the film. And uh, that children's series, um, it's on the, the Cornerstone, Cornerstone Network. Network yeah. Yeah. And uh, they're showing it. Uh, that's also been made into a curriculum. And there's a high school curriculum as well uh, for uh, for homeschool uh, kids. And then we have a book called The Evidence of Faith. And The Evidence of Faith is a book that um, is a small group study, and it helps people to um, 
go through it. There's videos in front of uh, every episode, every chapter. It just talks about, well, what is this chapter about? And it's basically uh, discussing why it's important that we have a historical faith. Because there are many people today that say that we don't have to have a historical faith. These stories don't have to be true. They're just good moral teachings. And what we're going to basically do in, in that book is take you through the reasons why it, we have a historical faith and why that's very important not to, not to lose, uh, lose that understanding. Amen. Well, Tim, thank you so much for allowing us to come along the way in your journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've been blessed by your impact in my life the, the few times that we've had the opportunity to meet. And uh, I just appreciate this time that we've had today. Well, John, uh, keep up the good work. Thanks for, for doing it. Thanks for having me on the show. It was great to be able to talk with Timothy Mahoney and learn from the lessons he's learned along the way. In his story, I noticed some similarities to my own. For example, he started off pursuing radio and ended up in TV and film, as have I. Even though our crisis of faith wasn't over the exact same issue, it drove us both to search for the truth and not to stop until we found the answers to the questions that were stirring within us. In some circles, people say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, and that's all the evidence they feel they need to have. But the Christian faith isn't built on some fabrication that we have to overlook in order to believe. It is grounded in evidence and truth. So I encourage you to keep looking for truth and never stop. And when you're looking for truth, ask, why do some people look at a piece of evidence and believe, while others can look at that same piece of evidence and deny? Tim mentioned about having correct assumptions, and I feel that it is often missing in our filter as we look at the world around us. We need to be aware of bias and faulty assumptions when we're gathering information to make a decision. When I'm confronted with the evidence, it can make me uncomfortable. But when the truth makes me uncomfortable, do I let the truth change me, or do I stay in my comfort? I want to be known as someone who is looking for the truth that changes me. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God also promises that he will be found when we seek him. Jeremiah 29, verses 12 and 13 says, That you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God's desire has always been for communication and relationship with us. I hope that you keep searching for truth with me and let God's truth change us to be more like him every day. If you want to know more about Timothy Mahoney, check out his website at PatternsofEvidence.com. You can find plenty of information about his Patterns of Evidence films, The Exodus and The Moses Controversy. He has a new film coming out in the fall about the Red Sea Crossing. Also, he has a curriculum for students called Young Explorers, and you can sign up for his thinker updates so you can be in the know with evidence that is being found today. Also, you can watch Tim's episode of Real Life, and there'll be a link in the show notes. You can go to reallife.ctvn.org to watch more episodes of my show, Real Life. Tim mentioned a few books, A Filmmaker's Journey and Evidence of Faith. Both of those can be found on his website, and I'll be providing links in the show notes as well. Thank you for joining me along the way. 
If you've enjoyed joining me along my way, please rate and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. My website is alongtheway.media. I hope you've enjoyed this part of my journey and may you realize when Jesus is walking with you along your way. Your way.